This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Last weekend, as is often the case, my six-year-old neighbor Lena, daughter of Mary and Neil, knocked on my apartment door and asked if she could come in to play. As usual, I welcomed her in, And in what has become a ritual of sorts, she asked if we could watch TV. We channel surfed for a bit, but after discovering there was nothing that suited her fancy, she abruptly had an idea. I know, she stated at once adorable and determined, I can go get my movie. Thirty seconds later, she returned with a DVD I had to struggle to pry out of her little magic marker-stained hands. The moment after I removed the DVD from the case, she grabbed it back and held it, as if it contained the meaning of life. Her eyes glistened. When I looked at the name of the film, I recognized the logo without needing to read it and realized that in my hands I held the holy grail of every girl under ten. In my hands I held the purveyor of fantasy and fascination and folklore. In my hands I held the electrifying, nearly dog-eared version of the one and only wondrous Walt Disney film titled the Little Mermaid. As Lena settled in for her magical journey, I remembered my own foray into the divinity that is Disney and reminisced back to the Sunday evening ritual of my youth. First, the viewing of Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom starring Marlon Perkins, followed by the ever-wonderful world of Disney. Meanwhile, Lena was mesmerized watching the adventures of the mermaid known as Ariel And when it was finished, she looked up at me with urgent eyes and asked in a whisper, Can we watch it again? This surprised me, and I asked her why. Because was her utterly logical response. I then asked her how many times she had previously watched the movie, and her answer was stated as if my question were the silliest query in the world. Millions, she impatiently said. Millions and trillions and billions. Children love repetition, whether it is is the resplendent bye-bye, bye-bye of the Teletubbies, or Dora the Explorer's constant vominos, or Hannah Montana's recurrent sweet niblets. Kids seem to be endlessly fascinated by the familiar. As I watched Lena press the play button for a second and then a third time, I started thinking about how much adults love repetition and ritual as well. We have our regular drinks in Starbucks that we order day after day after day. Mike from my office boasts that he has eaten the same sandwich for lunch every day for two years. Sue, my best friend since college, used to scold me for dating the identical man over and over and over, wondering when I would ever learn. Food, dating, entertainment, even seats at a conference room table in a business meeting. Human beings seem hardwired to stake out a physical and emotional territory and stick with it. We will even go out of our way to resist having to change things. This week, the New York Times published an article by evolutionary biologist Olivia Judson. In it, she writes, 
It is striking how often similar traits evolve in similar environments. All these systems show the same thing. At the genetic level, evolution is, to a remarkable extent, a repeater. What is it about the repetition that we crave? Do humans feel safer with what we recognize? Does consistency allow us to feel more secure? And what about art? Shouldn't we expect art and design and literature and music to be fresh and original? Perhaps it depends on the person. Many years ago, when I was working in the magazine business, word on the street had it that a new magazine was coming to Manhattan, and it was going to change everything. Some people were breathless with anticipation, and others, like my friend Suzanne and me, were skeptical. As two young women trying to break into the world of mass media, this was yet another barrier to the big time. I'll never forget the day in the fall of 1986 when the magazine first hit the streets. I saw it in Calter from a payphone in the West Village as I scrutinized the first issue. Ugh, it's hideous, I stated. There's an ugly picture of Chris Elliott looking like an idiot besides the cover line, Jerks. And inside, even worse. The type is so small and sarcastic, it is virtually unreadable. Forget it, I said haughtily and laughed. It'll fail. Of course, the launch of Spy that year was hardly a failure. In fact, the magazine so profoundly shook up the fat and happy publishing world, one could argue that it has never been the same since. Suzanne ended up getting a job there, and we never, ever spoke about my dire prediction again. I guess change is inevitable. How else could we evolve and grow? Still, there is something utterly comforting about consistency. Just last night, I lay tossing and turning in bed, once again unable to sleep. I switched the television on, hoping for something good to watch. With 600 channels, I had plenty to choose from. An all but impossible to believe new episode of House that I had previously recorded, and two cool movies on demand that I hadn't yet seen. As I went through my options, I suddenly stopped. Sex in the City was on. It was the episode when Miranda and Steve get married. I joyfully put it on, and I laughed out loud as I realized that, like Lena and her little mermaid, I had seen this particular episode no less than 20 times before. But lying there in the middle of the night, waiting for the world to wake up, it seemed that there was absolutely nothing that could be better than seeing something I had seen before and so thoroughly loved a thousand times over. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Kurt Anderson. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a bit more about him. Kurt Anderson is the author of the critically acclaimed best-selling novels, Heyday and A Turn, and Turn of the Century. Now at work on his third novel, Anderson is also the host of Studio 360, the Peabody Award-winning public radio program about culture and the arts, and a profound influence on this show. He is a columnist for New York Magazine, a co-founder of Very Short List, a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, and editor-at-large for Random House. He was a co-founder and the editor of Spy Magazine and editor-in-chief of New York. As a columnist for The New Yorker from 1996 to 1999, he wrote regularly about design and architecture. Kurt is a trustee of the Pratt Institute and the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College and was awarded an honorary doctorate 
by the Rhode Island School of Design. Welcome, Kurt. Happy to be here. Oh, it's so great for you to be here. Um, well, my first question for you is um, one that I find myself laughing as I ask you. Um, this, this interview is a first for me in that it is the first interview that I actually booked via Facebook. And so um, that is where I formally introduced myself to you and asked you if you wanted to uh, be on the show. So what made you decide to join the social network Facebook? I think, and my story is, that uh, my friend Larry Doyle, who's a writer, a screenwriter and a novelist, was publishing his first novel about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, and said, oh, I, I'm joining this I'm joining Facebook in order to promote I Love You, Beth Cooper, his novel. It, I need friends to join to make it seem like there's an audience for this novel. And I said, oh, okay, fine. Uh, and then, you know, there, are, there I was, and other people started friending me, and so uh, uh, I felt obliged. Of course, and, and, and I'm not a gigantic uh, Facebook user, but uh, the fact that one of my two teenage daughters won't allow me to friend her. I friended her, and, and she, she I, I, I still float in her <laughs> ignore limbo. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and that both, I think, is a telling thing about we adults, we old people invading Facebook and, and where social networks will go and how, how uh, the real world still sort of comes into conflict with what online social networks are supposed to be. Where do you think social networks might go in the future? Any predictions? No, I, I well, I assume that uh, you know, in in a few years, the kids a few years younger than my children won't have the memory that it was once their exclusive playground, and so they won't necessarily uh, reject oldsters like me from uh -huh. being their friend. Uh, you know, I, I think you know, as as with all things internet, and as we've been saying for ten years, and I think it's still correct to say, it's very early days. And but I get, but I do feel that. Um, whether or not Facebook is a is is a household word in five years or ten years, or a forgotten word like Friendster, mm -hmm. an earlier version of social networking, I, I I think you know obviously much life is going to continue to be lived online in various forms. Now, one of your status updates on Facebook, you indicated that Kurt is finally beginning to understand Clinton hating alas. You've done too much research. <laughs> So I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate on that statement, if you could. Well, I have been uh, – well, let me dial it back. I, I, I have always voted for Democrats for president, uh, sometimes very, very occasionally enthusiastically, mostly not. Uh, I, I, but I, one thing I never understood was this, this just visceral, intense loathing of the Clintons that has followed them for their entire political careers – and similarly, I never understood until relatively recently, later than almost all of my friends, Bush hating. Mm -hmm. I, I just, okay, they do right, they do wrong, and, uh, more wrong than right, whatever. But I just didn't feel the hate. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's where I come from. And, and, and okay, a, a year or two ago, I, I discovered with the rest of America, Barack Obama, fell in love with him, uh, had a crush on him. Uh, ever since I heard him speak at the 2004 Democratic Convention, and so I'm a big Obama supporter. Over the last two or three weeks, as I've as I've seen how Bill and Hillary Clinton disingenuously 
play the game of politics against him, I, I began to understand what it is about the way they conduct themselves, the, the intellectually dishonest ways and, and disingenuous ways and crafty, slippery ways that is at least accounts for part of the 15 years of Clinton hatred that's been afoot in the land. Mm. Do you think that Obama has a real shot? I do. I mean, talk to me next Wednesday, but uh, I think he has a real shot. I mean, I wouldn't. If I had to bet money, I'm not sure I'd bet money on him getting the nomination, but um, uh, as I talk to people more in the know than I who have who are privy to to internal polling in California and so on and so forth, I think his, I think he is, you know, things are looking better for him day by day. Things look better for him today than they did ten days ago. Yeah. Did you did you see today that uh, Ann Coulter wrote that if uh, McCain gets the uh, Republican nomination, that she's going to campaign for Hillary? Really? <laughs> yeah. That's funny because in a column I wrote last week, I threatened not very seriously that I would be tempted to vote for McCain if Hillary got the nomination. Actually, yeah, New York Magazine. So I'm, I'm like, I, I guess I'm the converse of Ann Coulter. <laughs> so the United States has obviously lost its reputation throughout the world, culturally, economically, altruistically. Do you think that we can begin to redress the difficulties that we have embroiled ourselves in with a new leader? It won't do everything. You know, America even at its very, very best, is the most powerful nation on earth. And at any given moment, whether you're Britain in the 19th century or Rome in the 1st century or all the various other imperial powers that were the big men on campus in their era, the rest of the world is going to tend to loathe you for various reasons. So, so there's an inherent anti-Americanism on that basis. There's, there's an inherent anti-Americanism, I think, among, say, the the European uh, chattering classes, intelligentsia, because we're vulgar. Yeah, that's, that's really no, nothing new. Nothing new. But certainly what has happened in the last five, seven years is, is an extreme version that I don't think has ever uh, existed. And so a lot of that can be dialed back, and a lot of that can be dialed back very quickly. Uh, I think, I mean, it's not the only reason I'm excited about Barack Obama, but I think in terms of rebranding America, mm -hmm. there's no more kind of nothing closer to being a silver bullet than making Barack Obama the President of the United States. Who do you think, who do you see as a, a major threat to U.S. supremacy in the near future? Uh, well, it depends on what form of supremacy you're talking about, the cultural, economic, and they obviously one follows the other. That is to say, cultural follows economic often. Um, I, I think the the true and obvious answer is, is China. I, I, you know, will that happen in my lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. Will it happen in my children's lifetime? Probably. Um, you know, the, 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 and, and I read an interesting piece the other day. I forget who wrote it, but it was it was really about uh, the the future. It's going to be a tripolar world, which is to say China, Europe, the European Union, and the United States, and that uh, we are essentially – oh, it was a piece in the New York Times magazine – and that we, we are in peril of, of losing that competition on all the various levels of cultural influence, economic primacy, and so forth. Um, so – and it was interesting 
because it raised the idea of Europe as a as an increasingly united, uh, you know, almost nation state like entity, being seriously competitive with the United States. So it's you know it's it's I th it's the next thirty years are going to be interesting to watch. Uh, you know, I, I and I think it, it's been an interesting. There was a point in the debate, one of the debates, I think, where uh, I think one of the Democratic debates where they talked about whether it was even correct as a paradigm to talk about restoring America's supremacy in the world. Mm -hmm. But that actually begins from a faulty and doomed assumption. Well, there's also that inherent hubris in a statement yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, America has always been full of hubris about itself and often you know it's it's worked out some <laughs> often but uh no i mean american exceptionalism and american sense of its own of it being the chosen people all that stuff um you know becomes harder to take when when it seems not to be doing very much to earn the the in in, in a virtuous sense the 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 respect of the world kurt we have a caller we have gregory from new york gregory thank you for calling design matters of questions. And oh, Gregory, we, we missed that first part of your I'm question. Sorry. Can you start from the beginning, please? Sure. Hi, Kurt. Hi. Um, I, w I was going to ask you all sorts of questions like, you know, do you, do you think you want to be Walter Winchell? Do you think there are real stars on Broadway? And then I listened to um, the, the, the conversation, and I, I'm very curious. I usually never discuss politics. I won't even broach the subject. But I, I am very curious. Uh, I, I'm a diehard Democrat in the worst way. Like if, Mo if Mother Teresa and Jesus were on the Republican ticket, I would not vote for it. So um, I, I'm very curious what you think would make Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Clinton or both of them any – why do you think the hatred is so, so uh, uh, intense for them as opposed to someone like Mr. Bush who, you know, obviously comes from privilege, obviously is not an intelligent person, obviously comes from um, having stolen an election the first time around. I mean, what makes him – or any of the rest, what makes the Clintons any less ambitious or greedy or dishonest compared to the other politician? Why, why do people pick on them? Well, I, I think you and I and the people we know who are, tend to probably be in political agreement with us loathe Bush as reflexively and with as much vitriol as Republicans, <laughs> Republicans loathe the Clintons. So I, I'm not sure it's... You know, I, I think it, it, it exists on both sides. Um, is it because she's a woman? Do you think that really has something to do with it ultimately, that, that people just can't accept? People don't like a woman who's really strong and powerful and intelligent like that? I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm sure for some people somewhere, a little bit of it, sure. But I, don't, I wouldn't put that among my top several reasons that, uh, for people not liking Hillary. Uh, I, you know, and it's, it, in a way it's a shame that she's the first potential and maybe probable female candidate for president, because she's such a, a strange, peculiar case, having come to this position by right. being married to a president. I agree. You know, so, I, no, I don't think it is. I, I think uh, there's an interesting new book that's just come out of, of 30 women writers writing about their views of Hillary, and, and it, 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 there's something interesting going on there, because here all these women are feminist, progressive people, and none of them like Hillary. I mean, Why is that? Well, you know, let's let's have two men figure it out. I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll type it's in. A real, it's a real enigma, isn't it? Well, I, I think there's a lot. I think that some of it, 
I, I think part of it, and it's not just for women, it's for people in general who, who don't w love her, don't aren't passionate about her candidacy, is, is the sense of inauthenticity and all, seeing the, the gears moving always in, before she says or does something. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, maybe there's some general uh, uh, female resentment about somebody who, who, who seems to sort of have it all. I, I, I think there are many, many reasons why, even those, you know, I was talking to some of the women who were contributing to this, who contributed to this book just at lunch today, and, and, and they were saying that even the people who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton next Tuesday in, in uh, the, the Super Tuesday primaries, that there's very little kind of full bore, full throated passion for her as a human being. You know, so I think there are lots of lots of reasons for it. And well, the last question I have is now: Do you think that whichever one of those two people is going to win the nomination, do you think um, they'll ask the other to run with them? And would uh, they be open to it, really, if, if they did? You know, I, I, I doubt it. I think it would be, I, I think, I, I'd be shocked beyond measure if he got the nomination and asked her to do it, and very surprised if she did it. I, I think there's a decent possibility that if she gets the nomination, she'll ask him, if only, to look nice mm -hmm. or, or, or healing or and, and uh, inclusive. But again... Uh, and, and that could happen. I mean, I, I would say if I had to lay odds, that, that that's that's a possibility, but probably not a probability. All right. Well, thank you. It's usually a conversation I don't have, but thanks very much. Me neither, except for the last three weeks. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank, thanks for calling, Gregory. Um, while we were on the air, Kurt, I just got word that um, Move On, I don't know if you knew that they had asked their members to decide to vote on who they were going to endorse, and word just came out that they're endorsing Obama. Um, but I want to talk about Heyday. Let's talk about your book. Um, you've been traveling across the country promoting your most recent book, and you've been offering a prize to the person who finds two tiny factual errors in the hardcover, which uh, you've corrected in the paperback, and I was wondering if you'd found anyone yet. Uh, people have suggested things, but no, nobody's won the prize. And, it, and, and after I set that up, which was just a whimsical notion I had one day, uh, as the paperback came out, I realized I should have made the prize bigger because it's really hard. I mean, no one but, you know, my wife and my agent uh, or ha have, you know, probably read the things that closely, if them. So, uh, no, a few people have, have emailed me with, uh, with uh, suggesting half answers. Like, well, I don't know if this is the one, but I think this was wrong in the hardcover. And then, in, in fact, it wasn't. And so, no, no there's still, it, the you could still, still be there. a winner. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I noticed that in heyday, avenues, uh, the word avenues, are, are preceded by the definite article, the, such as the Sixth Avenue, which is an unfamiliar way of referring to avenues. So why do you refer to them in this manner? Because in 1848 and 1849, which is when heyday was set, that's the way they were referred to. Um, uh, the... The, the 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 definite article from New York and I presume other uh, cities streets didn't disappear until later in the until late in the 19th century. And you in the novel you revel in technical phrase making. Um, you, you have a real boyish enthusiasm that shines through Brazelwood railing, dog powered butter churn. You also give your characters great names: Zeno Lucking, Prosper Skyring, or two. Is this a nod to Dickens? 
oh, there's a little bit of Dickensianism there. Sure, it's certainly in the names. I, I didn't, again, I didn't, I did set out to to write a novel about, set in the 19th century, that was also in, in, in the best ways that I could manage and in a way that people in the 21st century would like, that it was like a 19th century novel. So I, that didn't extend to saying, oh, I'm going to do these, you know, uh, funny Dickensian names. What I did, actually, as I was, I spent a year and a half doing research of all kinds, and, and one of the many dozens and hundreds of files that I created were of interesting uh, given names and surnames that I came across. And so I ended up with a hundred of each of those. And so th then basically for many of my names, and certainly those two that you mentioned, it was a matter of a kind of, uh, you know, one from column A and one from column B and seeing if that made it made an interesting name for this character. Do you have a, do you get a particular pleasure in the naming of things? Uh, I guess I do. I did, I mean, in those cases, which are, you know, they are minor characters because I think if you kept seeing Prosper Skyring or, or Ninian Bobo or all these other names, uh, again and again for major characters, it would probably, the, the fun would begin to pall. But yeah, I do, I do. And, and I, I was also, as I was immersing myself in the newspapers and books and magazines and diaries and stuff of mid-19th century and doing my research, I, I was, was struck again and again by interesting linguistic things, the, 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 the words that had fallen out of fashion, mm -hmm. we had no idea what they were, words that I was shocked and phrases that that seemed so modern yet existed back then. So, well, for example, what about oh, what like for instance, there 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 is this 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 sort of youth subculture that had suddenly uh, bloomed into existence called the Bowery Boys and mm. the Bowery Gals, which were, as nearly as I can see, a the first kind of self-conscious youth subculture that ever existed, and b pretty much like the hip hop generation, uh, but with no black people involved 160 years earlier and they had their own slang and their own way of dressing. Well, there was also a unique way of pronouncing And they're uh, Bowery Boy. Right. Um, but for instance, they, they, a lot of their slang has leached into our common uh, uh, parlance today and one of them that I, I, I had like a, was, was out of currency for a hundred and some years and then seemed to somehow crawl back in and that is when they would say, if you would say, uh, uh, oh, Kurt, there's a great party over here on the 4th Avenue, and uh, Polly Lucking is going to be there. The other, the, the Bowery boy would say, I'm there. Now, that struck me. I, I couldn't believe that that wasn't a 1998 word rather than an 1848 word. But, um, you know, uh, uh, so so lots of words and phrases that, that I mean, those were the most interesting to me, the ones that seemed anachronistically modern which is one of the reasons I made one of my characters be a kind of collector of new words and slang so that I could cue the reader <laughs> yeah. that, I, that I'm, I wasn't being anachronistic. Uh-huh. My favorite character in the novel is the journalist and, and rogue experimenter Timothy Skaggs, whose personal rambunctiousness and stinging dialogue, he, they make him a real standout. He's also one of the most conflicted characters in the narrative in that his interior monologues grapple with his own confused feelings concerning his striving for fame. And this strikes, for me, a very modern chord uh, for the desire to become rich and famous with great speed now seems to be a permanent part of the American mode. And what do you think has happened to the role of celebrity in our culture now? Well, I, I'm not sure I have very much 
fresh or interesting to add to the, the obvious, which is that the, 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 the desire to be famous, no matter how, no matter for what almost, is extraordinary, different than it was even, I would say, 30 years ago, certainly different than when I was a child. Uh, and to the point of, of Skaggs and the, and, the, and the sort of discussions of fame uh, and, and success in, this, in, the, in heyday, I, I think that you could really see, as with so many things that are, that are attributes of our modern society, you could really see the beginnings of that then. Uh, of, of sort of uh, celebrity for its own sake being pursued. I mean, still back then, most famous people are people who had achieved something uh, of, of, you know, some substance. Um, but, you know, uh, why, why is that? I, 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 as I say, I'm not sure I have a grand theory beyond what we've all read a million times, but it is... It's strange and, and, and to me disconcerting. Um, and uh, to you know the I mean, a Paris Hilton being the obvious kind of poster child for this weird new condition. But again, it it, it didn't happen yesterday. It's been it's been a slow it's been a, boil. Yeah, you slow know? climb up or down. Yeah. Um, how do you think and why do you think that the role of the paparazzi has changed so dramatically? Well, there are so many. I suppose. I mean, it's it's a it's a corollary. Uh, it's a byproduct of this thing, this larger thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. of interested in being interested in looking at images of the famous, which again has been ha been increasing for a long time, and and it's been enabled all along by technology. As soon as you could print images cheaply, fame became a different kind of mm -hmm. thing, and that happened late in the 19th century. Uh, starting in the middle of the 19th century. And now that you have, again, technology is, is enabling it. You've got so many channels for so much imagery, and, and everybody who has a cell phone has a camera. Uh, the, 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 the image overload, uh, you know, naturally has gotten extreme. And, and uh, um, where it will all end, God knows. You, you make the point in heyday that America is a part of perpetual reinvention. Um, and given your historical reporting of, of this person, what do you think of, of Donald Trump's continued ascendance and reinvention in the mainstream media? Uh, surprising to me. I mean, <laughs> if, 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 if said with just a slight bit of trepidation. If I'd had to, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, what, what will the Donald Trump you know, situation be uh, in, in, in 20 years from now, I, I know I would not have bet on him having a successful television Anything? show and all, all the rest of it. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's obviously, you know, he has a certain package of skills and attributes and tenacity and, and bu bullying refusal to say die and uh, that, that has kept him uh, in, in the spotlight. He always struck me. We, we, we obviously spent a lot of time obsessing on Donald Trump when we were doing Spy Magazine. And, and uh, so I am, I was anyway, I'm not anymore, but I was a student of Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, uh, when you say student. You I, 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 I thought about him a lot and studied him a lot and, 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 and read his, uh, you know, every utterance. Uh, I, I was, 
you know, I, I made a study of... Even, of, of, even before Spy, or did it really uh, start with Spy? It started a little before Spy. Actually, my co-founder of Spy, Graydon Carter, had written a profile of him for GQ as a freelancer before we started Spy. So he knew him and started being obsessed about, with him. And, and, and then I actually had did an interview with him when he was going to... when he'd hired the architect Helmut Jahn to build the tallest tower in the world mm -hmm. in the, in, on the west side of Manhattan. And, and, and so we both had this kind of... Uh, exposure to him that made us really interested in him. So, and he just, he was a great character to make into one of Spy's characters. And so I, I, I was, I was just, I remember being amazed that I've, I'd never encountered a person or seen a person who, who needed the limelight, who needed attention of any kind for whatever reason, like you and I need air and water. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, to your point about this this modern affliction, illness, uh, whatever it is for for fame, I mean he he is a he's an embodiment of it. You recently wrote a, a remarkably good foreword for a book by Carlo Gower titled "Public Relations and the Press: The Troubled Embrace," and in it you reference New England Magazine and refer to this quote from the uh, magazine. It's a pity that some efficient method could not be adopted to do away with the present system of indiscriminate puffery. Little or no reliance can be placed on newspaper opinions about a new book, and we are sorry to add that contemporary periodicals could not be consulted with a better chance of finding out the truth. Now, it's as remarkable and interesting as that quote is, that quote came from a New England magazine published in 1835. And that's what you're referring to in your piece. Do you feel that this could be true or is true or isn't true for much of the way that news, particularly entertainment and political news, is covered these days? Yeah, I, I, I think it's very – I think the impulse to m media studies for children and, and, and reading critically, as goofy as it sometimes is, is necessary because for exactly that reason, that, that, that you know – the, the, the degree to which so much of the media, uh, so much of what we read and see uh, is a function of a little bit or a lot of, of uh, twisting influence, uh, deference to uh, the, you know, the, 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 the people who are being written about. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely so. And and no, it struck me amazed, you know, that that 170 years ago people were complaining about it. And and uh, I will say I don't think it's been a straight line of getting worse and worse and worse for 170 years. I think no, we, I don't we think go so through either. cycles yeah. and ups and downs. Um, and it's interesting. I was at a dinner party the other night and some with some people in the fashion business, and they were talking about how how incredibly powerful. Vogue magazine and Anna Wintour is in, in 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 their world, and clearly that's that's true. And, and talking about um, the 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 fact that this product or that product essentially paid to get coverage by Vogue. Well, okay, I you know I'm 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 not a naif, and I know that that happens. I it when it when it's when it's Vogue or when it's when it's you know a, a scruffing lotion or a dress, it doesn't bother. I mean, it doesn't upset me. It doesn't bother me that much because what are the consequences? Who I mean, who, who is suffering? I mean, what what truth is being twisted or denied? But but I do worry when it kind of leaches into the more serious or more consequential press, and I think it it 
Where do you think that that's happened? Where has that happened? Well, I mean, I think it happens in most magazines to to small small degrees one another uh, when i was editor of new york I, you know i had regular uh you know character tests about whether uh i would or wouldn't run this or that piece or say that or this or that thing because an advertiser might be offended i, I and you know the best editors obviously resist mm-hmm. and and but i it's it's a it's a you know, it's an overwhel- It's a. It's not an overwhelming, but it's a. It's an incessant pressure on people who who run magazines. I presume on people who run television shows and all the rest. In um, my preparation to uh, for our interview, I uh, signed up to get your podcast from Studio 360, and just very serendipitously, while we're in our uh, interview today, just now, I, I got an email from. Studio 360, titled You Can't Make This Stuff Up, and it's about the upcoming show, I believe. Um, I want to talk to you about your show. You went on the air with your Peabody Award-winning show in the fall of 2000. How did the show come? It hadn't won a Peabody Award when we started, but yes. Uh, Yes, and and it's a great show. that The the show that you won the Peabody Award, the Moby Dick show, is absolutely wonderful. Who knew Laurie Anderson was such a Moby Dick fan? Um, But how did did the whole show come about? Public Radio International, which is the co-producer of the show and and uh, one of the uh, with NPR National Public Radio, one of the main three or four providers of programs to public radio, had this notion of some kind of weekly magazine show about culture and the arts and entertainment, and that was pretty much the extent of the idea. And they with their fellow co-producer, WNYC, which is the local New York City public radio station, uh, started to develop this, and then we set out in 1999 to hire a host, and they, out of the blue, came to me, and uh, I said, do you have the right person? I've never done this. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, they hired me, and we spent a a year sort of developing the show and uh, went on in the fall of 2000. So it was other... Arts programs, art magazine, arts magazine programs had been tried on public radio and had never really worked. I, you know, there there was a history of them uh, being announced, attempted briefly, and disappearing. Um, so uh, that that's how it came to be, and it, and it still strikes me as weird that it's the only national broadcast thing, TV or radio. Um, that does this because you go to Europe, for instance, and there are several shows like Studio 360 in every little country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, happily, you know, we, we've developed an audience and won these awards. And uh, and and I guess happily, we have no uh, direct, not much direct competition on the, in the in the broadcast arena. Now, I read that you consider radio an intimate medium. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well. Uh, when I when they were when they were talking to me about hiring me that that was the thing I kept hearing from the the people who were prospectively going to hire me these these radio veterans do you know it's an intimate medium and and I said yeah sure not having any idea what they meant um, what it but I've come to understand what it means and and I, maybe your listeners listening in some form of radio right now can understand the way it gets right into your head certainly if you if you're wearing buds in your ear, you know, it, it voices speaking in your head. That is an intimate connection that doesn't and can't happen uh, when, you're, when you're reading a newspaper or mm-hmm. a magazine. Um, 
the fact that we're just having a conversation, much of what, what radio is, is people having conversations, uh, that, I mean, the blogosphere, blogging, begins to replicate something like that, I guess, online, but... Uh, Nowhere near as intimate, though. But not as intimate, and, 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 and so the, the kind of colloquial, intimate, this human being talking to that human being, and you... The listener, probably alone in your car, or your kitchen, or your desk, just listening to these two people talk. It's it is a it is a weirdly uh, sort of intimate transaction. Now, I also read, I think it was in the same interview, that when you heard Ira Glass light into an audience at a public radio convention, he said to the audience, "You've become conservative. You accept mediocrity." You said, "Here, here." And I was wondering why you might have thought that, or st- if you still do. Well, I think any successful institution, and let's talk about public radio as an institution, even though it consists of 800 different stations and a zillion different shows, and it's not one giant monolith by any means. But but public radio over the last 30 years has grown from being this little mom-and-pop nothing to this giant institution, and, and I think what he was saying is that um, the, 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 the risks of being of sort of complacency and of saying, yeah, look, we built this great thing. We don't really have to change anymore. We don't really have to, to challenge ourselves. We don't really have to, uh, you know, uh, think outside the box, break the edge of the envelope, <laughs> pick cliche TK. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, an in- inevitable risk of any of, of successful uh, institutions and including enlightened, well-intentioned institutions like public radio. Kurt, we have another caller on the line. We have Susie from New Jersey. Susie, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I have a pretty general question about media. And I know that the kind of media that you're involved in, Kurt, isn't the same kind of media that's following Britney Spears around. But I'm just wondering, sort of, in this general state of affairs, you know, we're in a war. We're in a a very critical election year, and yet there are police uh, motorcades following Britney to the hospital. And how can, I don't understand how the media coverage is sort of going the way it is with these major things happening, but that there can be such news around Britney Spears or other inane things like that. Well, uh, I don't disagree with you that it's inane. Uh, You know, during World War II, there were, you know, it was the great golden age of, uh, you know, early great golden age of celebrity magazines and and this kind of, that it's that era's version of this stuff. So, you know, uh, there's that, that it was ever thus. Uh, I also think that in the last, again, 25 years or so, that as the, the, the idea of the market, the free market is it, is everything, explains all, drives all, that's all, it, it, it's our, you know, not just overall something we believe in, but like is taken to be the engine of everything. Something changed in my adult lifetime where that became true of the press in a way that it wasn't before. The way it wasn't in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In the 80s, 90s, and now, it became true. So what does that mean? That means if there is an audience for and money to be made uh, from uh, uh, people 
giving you 24-7 video of Britney Spears' meltdown, it's going to happen, and they're going to do it, and, and there's and, and, and shamelessness because, you know, uh, literally shamelessness. I, I'm not saying it even in a negative way, but there is no more shame for people to say, oh, there's an audience for it, so I'll give it to them. And, 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 and you know, I think when I was a kid, I, I, there were there were there was an etiquette and a sense of dignity and protocol. I mean, there were still there was still you know inane things that were in the press and written about and photographed, but not to the extent that it is now. And, and that's because uh, the sort of this hyper capitalism, market rules, period, and that's the answer to everything. Sort of that became the the new hardwired way that uh, the press, if you can talk about it in that broad sense, began to think about what it was doing. And, and you know, the, the newspapers used to think, oh, okay, people who own newspapers used to say, okay, we don't need to earn as big a profit as the widget company over there because we're in this noble uh, endeavor and we have a civic trust. Well, I guess that's my question: is sort of yeah. why did it lose that noble? Eh, I mean, um, it hasn't altogether, and there are still, you know, the, the New York Times, and there's still, you know, the, it, it, first of all, it hasn't gone away entirely, but to the degree it ha- the degree it did and has, I, I, I think, you know, you could the 1980s <laughs> is, is the answer. I think, I think, I think, I think, spy had I, I, I think something happened in the 1980s, and 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 again, I don't want to demonize Ronald Reagan or Reaganism and all that, but. It was part of the same thing that said uh, this this uh, this kind of ir- economically irrational enlightenment that says, "Oh, we won't spend you know a million hours covering Britney Spears." That that that's when that that sort of tipping point happened. I think. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for calling Design Matters. Bye, um, Kurt. Do you do you think that the newspaper will survive the internet? Well, I think the press will survive the internet, and and uh, you know whether uh, even in the next five years, I, will I keep you know going out to my stoop every morning and picking up those two pounds of newsprint and bringing it to the coffee ta- you know the kitchen table and read it? Maybe, maybe not. But but of course, I'm not going to stop reading the newspaper. I'm going to go online. So. I, you know, new models will, I hope, I, I believe enough in the invisible hand, not just economically, but, you know, right-thinking rich people will start foundations, new models of non-profit uh, news gathering will happen. I, 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 I am hopeful enough to believe that enough good journalism will survive uh, in, in, in the Internet age and, and that... Uh, uh, that it'll be okay. I, I, again, I'm only just. Ho- I mean, I'm I'm 51% hopeful. It could all, you know, talk to me in 20 years, and okay. it may be uh, a nightmare. Now, in addition to Studio 360, in addition to the novels that you write, in addition to the columns that you write, in 2006 you founded Very Short List, an online service for cultural connoisseurs who would probably never call themselves connoisseurs, uh, veryshortlist.com. Uh, what made you decide to do that? Uh, I have a friend named Michael Jackson, who is not the singer, who is a very smart uh, uh, 
his history is as being a television executive. He ran Channel 4 in Britain, big, great, cool channel in, in England, came to the United States uh, in 2001. We became friends. Uh, a few years later, began talking about uh, a project we might do together, and we said, both feeling middle-aged and out of touch with, say, music, said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could subscribe to a thing and we would get this beautifully designed box every month or every two months full of of, of beautiful, perfectly curated books and CDs and DVDs and a snack and maybe a, an object. And, yeah, that would be great. And and uh, we, we thought about trying to do that and uh, I went to Barry Diller to talk about that, and he loved it. And then we realized that uh, most the, the people in the world aren't, as, uh, how shall I put it, price insensitive as Barry Diller and, and at a much tinier level, even we, and that it would be hard to sell uh, this at the price that it would require. So that morphed into, well, we don't have to send him the real stuff, as, as exciting as that was to us. Uh, we, could, we could do the same thing, but sort of dole it out once a day online. And that, that was really the genesis. So it started in 2006, and it gone pretty viral. I mean, I don't know anybody that doesn't know about very short list. And I not only, you know, the real, I think the real evidence is when you see how much it's being linked, that, that you'll see something on a blog taken from very short list and or VSL now as, as yes. people are uh, referring to it. So how did, it, how did it grow so quickly? It, well, it hasn't been that, as you say, it's 2006. That's, 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 I guess that's forever yeah. in internet time. But, it but started in the fall of 2006. It grew big and it's staying big. Well, and, and then last, after sort of doing it, you know, on essentially effectively on the virtual kitchen table for a year, we, we got a serious general manager and and it's now and and I think again at the right time we sort of figured it out and then at at the right moment we hope in the in the viral growth we got somebody to really run it and and market it and manage it and yeah just in, really in the last uh, 4 months it, the, the 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 graph the the curve of 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 subscribers has has gone up uh, considerably and yeah it's one of those things that uh, take some time, and, and, and now it seems to be taking off, which is very gratifying. Who makes the decisions about what to put up every day? We, Michael and I, and the editor, a woman named Sarah Vilcomerson, uh, have a, and Gary Foodham, who's the general manager, have, a, have a, uh, an editorial telephone call once a week at, at, in which all of the suggested things, things each of us has suggested, things that are the, the three or four people who write most of them have suggested things that are this larger group of a dozen people. No, Number 17 is involved with very well, short-lived as I well. Sh I should mention, well. Bonnie Siegler and Emily Oberman of Number 17, along with Michael and I, are the, we're also part of that, oh, let's send this box full of stuff. So th I should not slight them as, as co-founders. The four of us really are co-founders. And, uh, and, and, and Bonnie and Emily suggest things, and, and then a, a small group of, I don't know, maybe you'd, Ten or a dozen people who have expertise in films or music or wherever they have expertise suggest things, and we go through this list of stuff uh, and link to the listen to the music first and watch the web videos and all that, and then and say, here's the ones that enough of us like and reach some consensus about, um, you know, which ones we're going to send out as emails. It's one thing a day. And is this a money-making venture? Well, that's the idea. Uh, How's it doing? Uh, uh, it represents, as a, as a fraction of my income right now, mm, zero. Okay. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, it's high it, hopes. It is it is reaching that point, as you say. It's all about selling ads, obviously, and and uh, because it's free, uh, 
uh, and everyone can subscribe for free. For free. Um, but but uh, it, we're, we're approaching, apparently, that point where uh, the, 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 the audience is big enough that we can sell ads for enough uh, that it will start making money. Now, I understand that you're working on a new novel. Will it be Will it be historical? Uh, it, it, if you define the 1960s as history, I guess. It, it well, I wouldn't, but I know plenty of people yeah. who would. No, you and I were alive then, so I guess not. It's not. I, I don't think of it as an historical novel, and and so it's. Uh, it won't all be set in the 60s, but m- m- much of it, much of the, uh, m- lots of important things will be set in the 60s. And so, can you tell us a little bit about the plot, or is it all very hush hush? It's not hush hush. It's just it's it's very squishy and early days, and so uh, it, it's sort of too early to sort of pretend as though it has more of a solid uh, form. I mean, I have a story, I have characters, I know what's going to happen, and and, and it's going to happen, be set in the, in the mid-60s, and it's also going to be set closer, essentially now, let's say, mm-hmm. and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll spend time in both of those eras beyond that. My lips are sealed. Okay. Well, I know your wife, Ann Creamer, has uh, written a marvelous book, Going Gray, What I Learned About Beauty, Sex, Work, Motherhood, Authenticity, and Everything Else That Really Matters. What is it like, two writers in one household? Uh, it's lovely, actually. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I guess, in, the, you know, the 18th and 19th century when people, uh, you know, lived and worked and did everything in the same place. It's a very kind of mom-and-pop operation. Uh, it's... It's it's been lovely these last eight years that we both write at home and work at home and and we both you know spend the morning writing and and then around one thirty uh, meet for lunch. Um, uh, it's it's great and and she writes she's writes very different kinds of things than I do so uh, we're not in the least competitive and uh, thank God and uh, um, you know because I've been in the racket uh, many years longer than she has she's relatively new to it I, I can be helpful as whatever, as an editor, as an encourager, mm-hmm. as a, you know, a sort of knowing some of the ropes. Uh, no, it's, it's great. And I understand that she is, she has a new book coming about women's emotions in the workplace. So to sort of put a little bow on the show, make it wonderfully symmetrical, what was her reaction to the Hillary tearing up? Uh, it's interesting. She had written this proposal for this book about Women and their emotions, and 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 uh, and, and cr- including crying and at work and so forth, and what that means, and uh, if what, wh- how the workplace is is or isn't or should deal with this and cope with this and accommodate this, uh, and of course, then this that the tearing up moment comes, and she suddenly said to the agent we share, uh, "We've got to get this proposal out there. Now is the time." Her reaction was. She thought it was real. She thought it was understandable and legitimate, uh, but it didn't make her any more eager to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well, Kurt, and unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show. I feel like I could speak with you for at least another hour or two or three or four, um, but I want to thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Um, I also want to thank uh, Adobe, our wonderful sponsor. Thanks also to Brian, Rubin, and Jeff at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their extraordinary help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is legendary graphic designer Vaughn Oliver. 
Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.